he evidently had unshakable faith in the ultimate triumph of right. Hello and welcome to the inaugural Royal Melbourne Hospital podcast. Before we launch into our pilot episode, let me give you an overview of who we are, what we do and why we are doing it. My name is Sam Fiorenza and I'm a third year basic physician trainee here at the Royal Melbourne. And along with one of our psychiatry registrars, Hamish Lewis, David Guy and the team at the Medical Education Unit, we decided to put together a podcast that confronts the gaps in all other medical podcasts. Whereas other podcasts are aimed primarily at students or trudge through the latest literature, this podcast is made for training doctors or advanced level medical students. In particular, we want to ask those questions you were too afraid to ask of your consultants or address those conundrums you've had on covering shifts. The format is this. Each episode, you get to be engaged by the dulcet tones of some of your favourite consultants, as myself and other registrars cross-examine them on a discrete clinical entity that we've all encountered and has given us headaches throughout the years. Then we throw the proverbial curveball and discuss a recent, controversial paper that questions what we know and what we do. Each episode goes for about 15 minutes, but this one may run a little longer because of my preamble here. The topic of our first episode is brought to you by the size of exasperated med regs who rock up to a met call for tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, that age-old, regularly encountered, irregularly irregular quagmire. And who better to talk about atrial fibrillation than Dr. Paul Sparks? Dr. Sparks is one of our esteemed members of the preeminent electrophysiology team here at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. He is a supraventricular specialist, having published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology and Circulation, to name but a few. Joining us is General Medical Consultant, ICU extraordinaire, Dr. Robert Citroni. Thank you so much, the two of you, for coming. I want to start by giving you three separate clinical scenarios, and I want you to tell us the single most important information you would like to know in managing these patients. Firstly, a 78-year-old female post-coronary artery bypass surgery, now day two, with a heart rate of 150, irregular, blood pressure 130 on 80, afebrile, and saturations of 93% on two liters via nasal prongs. Second case, a 58-year-old from residential care with chronic liver disease, admitted with pneumonia, Charles Pugh C cirrhosis, heart rate 170 in irregular, blood pressure 90 on 80, sats of 93% on 10 liters. And finally, a 38-year-old male, sudden onset heart rate 190, blood pressure 170, lightheaded, and it's his seventh admission to the ED in the last year with a similar presentation. Dr. Sparks? I think the first thing to do is not so much concentrate on the rhythm, but look at the patient. And one of the problems we have is that a lot of people focus on the atrial fibrillation and don't look at the patient. In the first instance, you've got a woman who's had bypass surgery. She develops atrial fibrillation. Now, 50% of people who have bypass surgery who've never had atrial fibrillation before, will develop AF, and maybe it's going to be their first episode of AF and and their last. So the key is she's not very symptomatic, her blood pressure is normal, she's a little bit short of breath. So I think the thing is you don't have to cardiovert the patient, jump on the patient's chest, etc. You just sit there and wait. And if she does have palpitations, you can slow it down with some type of AV nodal blocking agent, which we can go into later but I don't think we need to get too excited about her. And that's the problem. A lot of these med calls are called for just rates. And I always tell the people, look at the patient. Don't just focus on the rate. Um, Similarly, in the second case, you've got a 
someone from residential care. Again, the, the, the problem is pneumonia and respiratory failure. It's not atrial fibrillation. So again, you don't need to focus on the atrial fibrillation. You need to treat the patient's respiratory failure and the AF rate probably come under control secondary to that. The third case is a little, a little bit more interesting from a cardiac electrophysiology point of view. And this is clearly a young man with symptomatic rapid atrial fibrillation. Again, the patient's not going to die of their atrial fibrillation. And again, don't get too excited about it. It should probably settle with time. It may be a, something that you can just rate control uh, initially and then, then have a, a think about it down the track. Occasionally, if patients become hemodynamically unstable, you can electrically cardiovert them. If you're absolutely certain, you know about the time of onset. If you don't, well, you've got to sit tight, maybe control their rate a bit, anticoagulate them, etc. So there's a couple of different things that you can take out of those three clinical scenarios. Dr. Strani, would you agree with that assessment? I would agree with everything that Paul said. I think it's important to focus on the patient and AF in this instance being the arrhythmia second. Um, those three different scenarios, I think you've chosen because they do highlight that sort of fact that they're quite different scenarios and yeah, it's very common after cardiac surgery. I mean, take your own pulse in that situation. But, you know, I'd be asking what's been ha- what's happening, what's happening with the chest tubes. Do an exam. What's the respiratory rate? For example, patients that are tension pneumothorax or a pneumothorax, the treatment's not drugs. It's treating the um, underlying problem. The second case, my, my first question would be, is there advanced care plan? Because uh, this uh, almost looks like an end-of-life scenario for this man. But, you know, the first approach would be fluid resuscitation and treating the underlying sepsis as... Paul's highlighted. And with the third case, this is the one where you'd kind of like to get the electrophysiologists involved. They might take a bit more interest in this case. They may have a structural or electrophysiologic abnormality, which may be amenable to um, something clever. Dr Sparks, you clearly see a lot of patients with atrial fibrillation. What do you find residents and registrars miss most commonly when assessing patients in AF? Well, again, it harks back to the first three cases, and the bottom line is the AF may not be the primary problem. So the idea is to look at the patient from the foot of the bed, work out whether they're sick or they're not sick. And a lot of people panic about atrial fibrillation. They think the patient's going to have a stroke while they're watching the patient. The answer is that's not going to happen. So a common scenario is the patient that you'll get called about on a Friday night. They've gone to see their GP for a prostate check. The blood pressure's taken. The patient's got atrial fibrillation. The patient looks at the doctor. There's nothing wrong with me. But the doctor panics and the patient ends up in the emergency department for cardioversion or anticoagulation or the rest of it. I think you've just got to look at the patient first and and work out whether the AF is a primary issue or a a secondary issue. Dr. Strony, we're often told that hemodynamic stability forms the core approach to AF. But what else worries you as an intensivist in a patient who's in atrial fibrillation? Well, at risk of sounding repetitive, it's what's going on. Why is the patient in atrial fibrillation? And I'm particularly concerned about patients who have shock or multi-organ dysfunction, and atrial fibrillation is very common in that setting. But again, the key is to address the underlying problem. Occasionally, in patients with severe ventricular dysfunction or diastolic dysfunction, I've seen patients go into near arrest with going into atrial fibrillation, but that's a rare scenario. You've usually got time to sort things out and take, with a methodical approach to make sure you're not missing some, an important underlying trigger for it. I really like that axiom of stepping back, having a look at the patient, taking your own pulses is a classic one. Let's move on to management. 
Since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I was told that the approach to AF should be about cute and long-term management in the domains of rate control, rhythm control, and the prevention of cardioembolic events. I want to address the curly question in each of these components, and let's start with rate control. Dr. Sparks, can you tell me about the AFFIRM and RACE trials and the position they hold and should continue to hold in our management of AF? Well, these were studies performed about 10 years ago looking at whether or not looking at the atrial fibrillation and converting the patient to sinus rhythm is as good or better than just leaving them in atrial fibrillation and anticoagulating them and addressing risk factors. And I guess the bottom line is from both of the studies is that rate control and forgetting about the atrial fibrillation is a reasonable alternative to trying aggressive approaches to putting the patient back into sinus rhythm. But you know, I guess the more you drill down on these patients, you know, some of them you like to leave in atrial fibrillation because they don't have too many symptoms and other patients can have significant symptoms in atrial fibrillation and you want to give them a chance of perhaps um, getting back into sinus rhythm. So look, they, they help to a certain point because they say that, you know, anticoagulation and a simpler approach with avionodal conduction blockers is a reasonable thing to do. But, you know, I think what we've got to address also is just you know, keep an open mind that um, there are patients where, you know, a reasonably aggressive approach to putting them into sinus rhythm is warranted. And that's, I guess, where electrophysiologists um, come into their own because we tend to want to do that. Can I ask about the eye-rolling dilemma of the troponin rise in atrial fibrillation? Is it the self-stress test and is it substantial evidence that these people should be being investigated for impaired coronary perfusion? It's a really important issue because patients turning up with rapid atrial fibrillation often have their troponins measured whether or not there's a clinical indication to do so. And that's the problem. You're left with a troponin rise, a patient with new or rapid atrial fibrillation, what do you do? I tend to investigate patients who've had a troponin rise, mindful of the fact that you know half of them will have completely normal coronary arteries. They do not need an angiogram straight up and I'd be doing a non-invasive test to sort out whether or not there was evidence of coronary ischemia down the track. Clearly, if there are changes on the ECG suggesting ischemia, they end up with an angiogram. You sort of don't know what's chicken and egg. Has the patient had a significant ischemic event and gone into AF, or have they gone into atrial fibrillation? And as you say, are they stressing themselves? So it's, you know, horses for courses. I certainly don't think you need to do an angiogram straight up, but I would investigate most cases of troponitis with AF. Dr. Trani, can I ask specifically about our patient population in general medicine, the troponin rise in AF, how concerned do you get, how much do you want that investigated, or is it something you sort of leave by the wayside? Well, I think as Paul was alluding to, I mean, again, history, you know, um, examination and looking at the ECG I think is important. If the patient gives a history of unstable angina preceding the dysrhythmia, that may lend weight to ischemia being a trigger. But if the patient's septic or got other features, then that may be a secondary phenomenon rather than the primary. But, you know, looking at the ECG, some people you'll see belt along at 180 beats per minute with completely flat ST segments, and others have very deep ST depression at rates of 130. So I think the more ST depression I see, the more inclined I would be to consult with my cardiological colleagues and discuss at what point and what would be appropriate in terms of the next step for um, uh, investigating the coronary situation. Let's move on to drugs. I want to address digoxin and the double-edged, yet quite blunt sort of that drug in a second. 
But from an acute control perspective, Dr. Citroni, what are your thoughts on IV metoprolol? Is it overused, underused? Should it never be used? Again, it's very context specific. I mean, in a lot of the patients that I look after in the intensive care unit, we simply don't have many viable options. Uh, we often, got, often haven't got blood pressure to work with, and these patients are often on catecholamines and uh, alpha and beta agonists to maintain the, this, the situation in shock. And clearly, your calcium antagonists and your beta blockers aren't a practical options. So often we're left with the least worst of a bad bunch, which is amiodarone, which again, you know, unless the underlying problem is being addressed, will have limited efficacy. But in terms of the ward, I think there is certainly a role for IV metoprolol for your hypertensive patient, patient with diastolic dysfunction who's got known preserved systolic function. I think I think I would uh, support a strategy of using IV metoprolol in that situation if people think that they want to revert or slow the patient down quickly rather than relying on oral medication, for example. Dr. Sparks, IV metoprolol, and then I'd like to hear your comments on verapamil as well. No, I I enjoy a bit of IV metoprolol. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, it's a reasonably safe drug in the setting of someone with a normal ventricle. And uh, it, I think it calms everyone down, the patient and the person administering the drug, as long as it's done slowly and, um, as we've heard, uh, carefully. It's used a little more often than verapamil, which I find tends to drop the blood pressure a bit more, but it's a useful alternative someone with asthma, someone with known sen- sensitivities to beta blockers. And um, we are going to talk about digoxin, and I am still a bit of a fan of digoxin. And amiodarone is also a good rate-controlling agent, good potentially cardioverting agent and sometimes amiodarone is the only thing that you've got at your disposal if you need to um, calm the rate a little bit and um, so there are no major problems in using that particular drug but we'll talk about that I guess subsequently. Can you tell me about amiodarone? When do you use it? Who do you use it in? How long do you use it for? Well I guess it could be in the water here at the Royal Melbourne Hospital because um, it's a drug that I guess has a bit of a bad reputation I think mainly from the use in the 80s where people were on industrial doses of amiodarone for supraventricular arrhythmias and ended up people ended up with slate gray pigmentation of the face and you know strange side effects and things but amiodarone is quite useful in doses of sometimes 50 to 100 milligrams a day for the maintenance of intermittent atrial fibrillation for some people um, so it can be used in low doses like that. It's used for ventricular tachycardia, of course, in slightly higher doses. Intravenous amiodarone is quite useful in circumstances where you can't use anything else. It's a good rate-controlling drug and occasionally cardioverts the patient from you know, atrial fibrillation to sinus rhythm. So you know, I'd give it five or six stars, but it needs to be administered by people who sort of know what they're doing. Dr. Trony, do you think we underuse amiodarone, particularly in general medicine? Well, no, I don't think we don't. I don't think we underuse it. Like I said, we, we use a lot of amiodarone in intensive care unit because the options are limited. IV amiodarone is a very safe and effective way of controlling the rate and, and will revert some patients. So for the acute IV setting, it, it's fairly safe. Um, the longer term effects are less of a concern. But you know, chronic oral use, I try and avoid prescribing almost at all costs. It's got a terrible safety profile long term. You know, there is a difference uh, uh, in terms of the, the different dosing that's recommended. But, you know, I, again, I think this segues onto digoxin, but, uh, but I really uh, try and avoid using it chronically, uh, you know, in chronic maintenance or chronic rate control unless there aren't any other options. 
I know there's something that's come up with us recently, Dr. Satrani, but let's talk about Wolf Chaikoff, Yod Bazado, and other hyphenated eponyms. Tell me how cautious are you about using amiodarone in a patient, even when you have a small inkling of thyroid disease or they've got a known goiter, for example? Uh, I, think, I think you should be very cautious. If, if your back's to the wall, the patient's crashing and they're shocked and they're in AF, well, I think you've just got to bite the bullet and use what you can use. And in that situation, you may have no other choice. Completely different scenario if you've got a patient who's uh, in ambulatory care or is on the ward. If you've got known thyroid disease, I, I think it's best to steer well clear of amiodarone. I want to move on to some other drugs. Dr. Sparks in the Rhythm Control Armamentarium. Dronetarone, gone, never to return. I think it's probably gone, never to return. But um, the problem with that particular drug was that um, anyone with a ventricle that wasn't completely normal tended to um, die or have an arrhythmia. So it was not a particularly good drug and not a particularly successful trial. So I must say that um, we haven't been using it here in the EP unit. Just if we go back to amiodarone just slightly again, um, well, we sometimes have patients where it's our only option certainly for people with ventricular arrhythmias, which are really difficult to control, and some AF patients as well. But, and we have on occasions um, subjected people to thyroidectomies if they've had histories of thyroid disease so that you can use amiodarone down the track. So, you know, it has a bit of a bad rap, and, you know, I'd agree with everyone here that it, it is a drug that has to be used carefully, but it is not as, I guess, as evil as perhaps it's being made, made out to be at the moment. Talk about DC cardioversion with the two of you. First, Dr. Satroni, again, back to our general medical population, something we deal with every day. Uh, we don't often DC cardiovert our patients. Are we underdoing it? Now, can I clarify whether you mean acute cardioversion or you mean planned outpatient cardioversion? Planned outpatient cardioversion. No, I, I don't think we are underutilising it. Most of the patients we see in general medicine have established atrial fibrillation, have structural heart disease, have big chambers are elderly, and we know that these patients uh, don't have a high success rate with um, cardioversion. So I think their trend has been to move away from that, you know, is the philosophy of trying to maintain rhythm control rather than rate control. Of course, you might get the younger patient with uh, less of those other features who may be worth pursuing, as Paul mentioned earlier, in terms of a more rhythm control approach for that specific individual. But as a whole, I know I don't think we're underutilising it. Dr. Sparks, what, is, what would you consider to be the best criteria when DC cardioverting a patient in a planned setting for likelihood of success for your patient population? Yeah, I guess I've probably got a more aggressive approach to cardioversion. The key is if a patient doesn't have any symptoms from their AF, I wouldn't be cardioverting them. So the important thing is to establish whether or not the patient is unwell because of their atrial fibrillation. And that's, you know, part of my job I find is that You'll have be presented with a patient with atrial fibrillation who is a bit overweight, a bit hypertensive, and is looking for the answer. And the answer may not be cardioversion. The answer might be weight loss and exercise, and treatment of their blood pressure and getting a bit of fluid off. So, and often before, say, doing some of the high-tech ablation procedures, I actually demand that they're being cardioverted a couple of times to ensure in my own mind that they're symptomatically better in sinus rhythm before doing much more than that. I would agree that, you know, for the asymptomatic patient, they need to be anticoagulated and they may not need to be cardioverted at all. I think 
probably too much cardioversion is being done on patients who do not have any symptoms whatsoever. They do not need to be considered for electrical cardioversion. Sometimes if their ventricle has gone off completely, I might consider cardioversion with amiodarone on board because that can potentially improve their heart function. But um, for the asymptomatic patient, normal ventricle, slightly large atria, I'm not going to cardiovert uh, patients at all. No. Dr. Trani, I want to move on to that old chestnut of the hypertensive heart disease patient with recurrent episodes of acute pulmonary edema due to going into rapid AF. I know they probably have atria the size of the Sistine Chapel, but should we be trying to DC revert those patients? Let me just say that trying to DC revert someone with acute pulmonary edema is not for the um, inexperienced or unless it's been very carefully considered. Look, there are very effective strategies for this scenario, and one thing that is very effective is actually CPAP or continuous positive airways pressure and that's perhaps underutilised in the acute setting for acute pulmonary edema due to uh, which is cardiogenic in cause. Um, it often works very well very quickly and it you know brings the rate down very nicely and very quickly in addition to your other measures your diuretics and and whatnot. So um, certainly I don't think for the acute setting I mean you have to make a call if someone's pre-arrest with their atrial fibrillation that's a typical call like with any tachyarrhythmia, there should always be a consideration of cardioversion, but it's really warranted, if at all, for atrial fibrillation. Before we move on to the question of NOACs and existential angst, I want to ask you, Dr. Sparks, about pulmonary vein isolation. Underrated? Overrated? Who do you refer? Should I just get one now prophylactically? Well, I can give you my private rooms number if you want, Sam, and we can sort something out for you. But um, it's... A very useful procedure and probably curative in about 90% of people with intermittent paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. If you've just got, I'm not going to go into the pathophysiology of atrial fibrillation, but if you've just got triggers, if your pulmonary veins are active and hot and you've got a structurally normal heart, the AF that you have, which are little bursts of atrial fibrillation, is a bit like a supraventricular arrhythmia. It's not the AF that you see in the elderly patient with multiple diseases. It's like a supraventricular tachycardia. So if you can isolate pulmonary veins, which in 95% of the sources of these triggers, you can actually cure atrial fibrillation unquestionably, unquestionably. The problem we have is that many people referred for pulmonary vein isolation are not the candidates that would benefit from it. They have persistent AF or chronic atrial fibrillation or they have large atria or there are a million other things going on. But for the patient who has a completely normal heart, who have, you know, has so-called vagal atrial fibrillation or exercise-induced atrial fibrillation, where it's all about triggers and not substrate, those patients are cured with a pulmonary vein isolation procedure. So it's uh, an important procedure. It's being used um, uh, very commonly now for the treatment of people with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. But you've just got to have the right patient. That's a really good point about selecting the appropriate patient population. Dr. Strain, do you want to add anything to that with regards to pulmonary vein isolation? Do you see it used much in patients you see? Again, not perhaps in the older cohort, but I mean, this is an area of intense um, investigation and uh, mounting expertise and experience. And uh, it, I think we are seeing, the, as we understand atrial fibrillation more, um, more procedures or techniques are being proposed in terms of dealing with it in, cur in a curative fashion. So that's an exciting front, I think. I want to move quickly on to cardioembolic prophylaxis and talk about something that vexes all of us, and that's about NOACs, the now non-vitamin K oral anticoagulants as opposed to novel 
Dr. Sparks, let's start with you as a cardiologist to NOAC, to not to NOAC. Well, Sam, I love them. And um, it's, um, it's, it's all about ease of use. And, you know, people have done um, analyses to look at if you have warfarin and you have a NOAC, if you can offer a NOAC to a patient population, probably more people are going to take it up than normal warfarin. And so in the end, you may end up treating many more people than you would otherwise have treated with warfarin and perhaps on a population basis that's going to work out with fewer strokes down the track. I was a little reluctant initially when uh, many of the companies were pushing their particular um, medications with strange sort of you know programs where patients would be offered free drugs and the doctors would be offered free holidays to surfers and things like that but that's not the case now. The drugs are on the PBS. Patients tend to love them because they don't end up requiring INR testing. This theoretical problem of the drugs being irreversible, I haven't come up with any scenarios as yet where you know patients have run into bleeding problems because they're on those agents. We just stop them two or three days before procedures which are elective and patients tend not to have any problem. If you drill down on the data looking at bleeding complications in the warfarin versus NOAC trials, patients who did worse were the patients on warfarin compared with the patients who bled on NOACs. Now, it's not a particularly robust analysis, but it just means that if you do bleed on a NOAC, you, you, you tend not to die. You tend to be resuscitatable and you tend to survive. So look, I've been using them a lot more frequently than um, I thought I ever would. And I think it's because patients are much more likely to take it up and down the line they might be prevented from having a stroke because they're taking a medication that they want to take. Dr. Strain, I want to ask you about the same question. I want to put to you a situation I came across the other day. I had a functional 70-year-old gentleman who exists in the community, Charles Pua cirrhosis, no varices at all on his recent endoscopy, and he had a CHADS VAS score of six, and I wanted to put him on anticoagulation. Uh, Prof Russell said NOAC all the way. I want to ask you about that particular patient and what you think about NOACs in general. Well, I would love to be loving them a lot more than I have so far. They look fantastic on paper. They really do. You look at this, the, the, um, the Rocket AF trial with Rivaroxaban, you know, single daily dosing, off you go. Um, there's even some dose adjustment recommended for moderate renal impairment. A lot of my colleagues are quite conservative when it comes to NOACs in general, and I have come across a couple of patients and I've known of one patient who was sanguinated with uh, irreversible bleeding due to a NOAC. So, look, I think as a community we're becoming more familiar with them and we have different levels of comfort. I think with time they'll become more accepted and more used. But I still think that there are some patients I see who, you know, the wind changes and they drop their GFRs from 35 to 15. And these people can really get into trouble um, very quickly with uh, and, and difficulty with measuring the, the level of anticoagulation. And we just don't have a, as well marked out parameters for that. And there are reversal agents, I understand, under investigation. And if and when they finally become available, I think that might help facilitate their more wider uptake in the, in the patient populations. But I think their use will increase with time. Wonderful. Fascinating. Something we're going to be delving into more in a subsequent episodes about stroke. Let's move on to the last section of our show and talk about our paper today. And we've chosen a fascinating and what I think is an under-discussed study from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology 
uh, that can be summarized in one fairly controversial statement, and that's digoxin kills people with AF. This is the study by Turkaria et al., uh, published in Jack of August of 2014. I'm going to start with Dr. Troni and ask him to give us a brief rundown of the study, and then we'll, we'll get into the meaty bits of it. Well, firstly, for your listeners, don't feel bad if you haven't seen this study on the front pages because there's probably a few reasons why it hasn't been on the front page. It was a very large uh, retrospective cohort study, massive data trawling exercise involving um, 120,000 patients here you've, you've listed, Sam, and a total of 350,000 patient years. That's mind-boggling. However, they were mainly recruited from primary care via data sort of trawling. Mostly were Caucasian males, um, veterans in the veteran sort of health system in America. And again, they were followed by registries. And we all know that there's you know, significant issues with um, uh, collecting data from, from such a method retrospectively. Uh, and then, of course, the question is, how was it controlled? Well, then, you know, all sorts of statistics that I don't really understand are often used to try and uh, uh, cope for confounders and, and match things. But I think it falls under the category of uh, retrospective cohort studies are generally hypothesis-generating studies. They really sort of um, give us any conclusive answers. So I think it's interesting, but I think the conclusions that can be drawn from this study are, are rather limited. Dr. Sparks, your, your opinion on how they got patients for the study and what were the results? Look, Amar, I, I agree with Dr. Citroni here that um, it seems like a massive data dredging exercise. And, um, and you know, what is problematic for me is that, for, at least from clinical practice, many patients who just get digoxin perchance tend to be sicker with multiple comorbidities. And I just get the feeling that the, the ones who are going to die a little more easily might have been given digoxin and patted on the head and given aspirin. And the ones who were perhaps a little more robust may have been looked at a little more carefully or their anticoagulation would have been looked at a little more carefully and perhaps other factors contributing to their illnesses would have been looked at closely. And um, I think the, the comment that Dr. Citroni makes in that is that these massive data dredging exercises tend to be hypothesis generating. And I think when you're looking at an important drug like this, um, before throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I think you'd need a prospective study to look into this. And what worries me is that you needed 500,000 patient years to see a, a minor mortality increase with this particular drug. And um, I'm, not, I'm not convinced. And I must say that just given, given clinical experience, I haven't seen this. Um, and one of the other things is that the mode of death is not described in the study. So how did these patients die? Did they die of pneumonia? Did they die of suicide? Did they th throw themselves under a car? What, what, you just do not know. And I think that um, before discounting this medication, I think we, we just need a lot more information. Discount the study before discounting the medication? I think so, and I don't want to cast aspersions about the unit that um, dredged the data, but um, I think that the, the conclusions and perhaps the, the headlines that have come from this are a little misleading. The editorial that comes with the paper um, is a little more measured, and I think that's worth reading. But I would not 
be printing the T-shirt that de Jockson kills at the moment. I think that um, in many circumstances, for patients who cannot take beta blockers or calcium blockers or have had problems with amiodarone, um, Dijoxin is a reasonable rate-controlling agent, especially in patients who are not, um, you know, doing triathlons and exercising. If they're sitting in the corner doing the Sudoku puzzle and the cryptic crossword, and need a little bit of rate control, I think Dijoxin is is fine. Dr. Strani, do, do you agree with that statement with regards to the use of Dijoxin? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, um, the critical care community went through all this with something else called serum albumin ten to fifteen years ago, and this caused quite a furor. Uh, it was a high-profile journal, The Lancet, published a, a, a very alarming article about 10, 15 years ago saying that uh, serum albumin containing solutions actually killed people. And there was actually a moratorium on its use in the UK for a period of time, and it took the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society tri Clinical Trials Group to conduct one of the largest randomised controlled trials ever undertaken in critical care patients. Uh, and that was the SAFE study done, uh, published about 10 years ago, which conclusively show that there was no excess mortality. Uh, and that really does highlight Dr. Sparks' um, point that it's, you, we shouldn't get carried away with the conclusions drawn from these retrospective studies because there are so many pitfalls in analysing the data. And I also might add that the, this data is at odds with the prospective studies done with the jocks and not necessarily in atrial fibrillation, but deduction with heart failure in which uh, in, in, there were several studies, I think, um, approved in the radiance trials uh, looked at discontinuing dysjoxin in patients with heart failure, and these patients did worse. They presented to hospital more um, readily, they had worse symptoms, and there was no excess mortality. So I think when you compare it to the prospective data out there, it, it is rather at odds, I think. So just before we leave, Dr. Sparks, parting thoughts on AF in general? Anything you want the crowd to know before we go? Well, when a patient comes to me with atrial fibrillation, I talk to them about the three S's, Sam. The three S's, and that's one is symptoms, the other one is stroke risk, and the other one is uh, systolic or squeezing function of the left ventricle. So if you can think about that, you can basically work out what a patient requires. So if they don't have symptoms, they may not need antiarrhythmic drugs or avionodal, conduct, avionodal blocking agents. If they've got poor systolic function, you might take a more aggressive look at their atrial fibrillation compared to if they've got normal left ventricular function. And then you look at their stroke risk, and we haven't gone into the ways we assess that, but that's the most important part of the whole game here is the patient is looking at you thinking, am I going to have a stroke? Now, if the patient is 40 with asymptomatic atrial fibrillation with no risk factors whatsoever, nothing needs to be done at all. They need to be appropriately reassured, and on the 65th birthday, they can be given a prescription for Xarelton. Okay? But nothing more needs to be done. But if you think about it and if you break it up, it becomes a little simpler. I think that you know many people are confronted with this patient with atrial fibrillation and they suddenly their brain goes to water. Okay, So that's just the way I, I think about it. And um, perhaps your um, listeners may take that on board. Dr. Satrani, parting words on AF? Well, for the, for the ambulatory setting, I really have nothing further to add that Dr. Sparks uh, didn't mention now, but more for the hospital setting for your registrars and residents or interns. Again, treat the patient first, treat the atrial fibrillation second. Try and find out why this patient's in atrial fibrillation. Deal with that because unless that's addressed, you really sort of, it's not really, you're really not getting to the heart of the problem and not really sort of um, employing the most effective means of um, restoring the human rate. 
Thank you, the two of you, very much. It's enlightening. In addition to the excellent consultants today for their wisdom, I would like to thank Associate Professor Peter Morley, Lynn Denby, David and the Medical Education Unit, as well as Michael Cleland and Jessica Hedger from the Executive. Thank you very much and we'll see you next time.